As I mentioned, people of God, we're concluding the book of Ruth today. I think we've had an enjoyable stay uh, in Ruth. I've had some great discussions with uh, many of you as we've discovered what Ruth says in these past weeks. It's a beautiful book. It's a wonderful piece of literature. It's warm. It's romantic. It's emotional. It's like the perfect short story. It's beautiful. But much more than that, Ruth is inspired by God, right? You know that. And God has something very important to say to us in it. We've seen that through and in the lives of these people who lived during these very dark times in the history of God's people. This was the times of the judges, when people lived far from God, when people, as we read, were doing what was right in their own eyes, what they thought was best instead of God. As believers, and we think of them living in those times, as believers we see that kind of living in our day too, around us, and we lament it. We're sad about it. People doing their own thing. People with CFD, covenant faithfulness disorder, like Elimelech had. Crazy stuff in our world. The murder of a congresswoman this week. People walking away from God. People not living for him. People not taking their relationship with their creator seriously. And all of that can have an impact on and the church and, and believers. And in the midst of that, Ruth speaks to us. God speaks to us. As we conclude this book in this last chapter, what we find is a recipe, a formula for life, a key for blessing. People, you know, are always looking for that elixir, a, a formula for the good life, a blessed life. And, and, and some people... I think this past week thought they might find it in the lottery, that big amount, a lot of excitement this past week. We think that the recipe for the good life could be in our popularity, our friends, our stuff, our job, our status. Instead, the key is living before our God. The foundation of our lives is what we're reminded of in worship today. It's what God has done in Jesus Christ on the cross by grace alone. And with that foundation, the key for you, the key for me, the key for us, is what we do in response. And in this final chapter of Ruth, I believe we find a key, a formula for living before our God. And what we're given is the essence of covenant faithfulness. And that's what you want to discover and have in your life covenant faithfulness so that when Jesus returns or maybe he calls you home before he returns so that he will say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. What is this essence of living before our God? What is the essence of covenant faithfulness? Number one, It's about striving for integrity. We're going to have three three elements to this essence of covenant faithfulness this morning. Number one, striving for integrity. In Ruth 4, we kind of really jump into the story, of course, in in Ruth 4. We we have to get our bearings a little bit. We pick up right from chapter 3, in the beginning of 4, 
where Naomi says at the end of that chapter to Ruth, you watch, you watch this guy Boaz. He's not going to stop until this matter is settled today. What was the matter? Boaz was willing to marry Ruth, which will result in extending the family line of Elimelech, Ruth's dead father-in-law. And this was all by way of this kinsman-redeemer law of God, where a near relative would step in and help out someone in need, whether they had lost their land, whether they had sold themselves into slavery because they had got so poor, or whether they lost a husband, and so that then the family line would be threatened. In all these cases... What could happen? God set it up this way. A wealthy enough kinsman redeemer could step out, pull out his checkbook, and take care of matters. Ruth boldly and with great faith initiated this kinsman redeemer process with Boaz in the previous chapter. Boaz says he'll do it, but there's a glitch. You remember? There was a closer kinsman, and that kind of we're, we're disappointed by that. We're disappointed by that because we want to see Ruth and Boaz get together so badly. The very morning after spending the night on the threshing floor with Ruth, Boaz goes to the town gate. In ancient times, the area just inside the gate was the place to hang out. That was the, the, the biggest public space because the roads with the houses were very narrow in those towns that's where business was done everyone had to pass through so boaz waited for this guy this kinsman redeemer to come by and asked him to sit down and then he has the elders of the town sit down you know there's there's some weird odd things to us here but this really isn't one of them this this really isn't so different from how Elders work in the church today. These were God's people in the Old Testament. These were the elders. People who had experience, who were recognized by the community to have godly wisdom. When they made a decision prayerfully, people listened, they followed it. And, and God has always set up leadership structures in very much this, like this in his church among his people. Something else that might cross your mind, you know, didn't, didn't these folks have any jobs to go to or anything else to do? Do they have time to do this? Well, yeah, they made the time. Their pace of life was very different from ours. Their life was such that on a moment's notice, they could drop what they're doing and give attention to matters like this. They were very much less schedule-driven than we are here in the Western world today. But here's the point. Of this, how Boaz proceeds, how he approaches this situation is with incredible, amazing personal integrity. Boaz doesn't shortchange the process, does he? He follows order. He doesn't fly by the seat of his pants. He doesn't skip over the law. He wants to do it right. He doesn't bypass the right process. We've seen all along that this is the type of guy Boaz is. And, and this is what's important about it, he exemplifies covenant faithfulness. 
in being a man of integrity because for him, it's about following God's ways as closely as he can in his life. That's what it's about for him. That's what striving for integrity has got to be about for you and me. He's not legalistic. You know, we, we might think sometimes people like this who are just overly, I don't know, we might think they're, they're legalists. And of course, there's a danger of legalism in our lives to think that our upright living somehow makes a difference in our standing before God. It doesn't, of course. We're saved by grace alone in Jesus. Or what, what could happen is our own careful living and standards, high standards, Sometimes, for believers, that results in a harshness with people around us. It could result in us being demanding of others. Even though we're, we're called to be demanding on ourselves before God, we're not called to be demanding and harsh towards others. We're called to be gracious. Those extremes that you find aren't good. And I don't want you to let those extremes keep you personally from being serious about obeying the Lord in your life. We are called to strive for personal integrity and obedience in our walk with God like Boaz. What does this look like with him? Well, we've seen it in these chapters. We've seen how his words and his actions match up. He says, the Lord bless you when the day starts out. And it's not just talk. He lives for God. We saw how he's a great employer, how he creates this godly work atmosphere. We see how he cares for those in need. He prays that God would be a refuge. He prays that God would take care of Ruth. And then he himself, as God's servant, is the answer to that prayer in many ways. He provides the shelter and the protections. None of that is being legalistic. In fact, Boaz goes above and beyond the law. Boaz is living in the spirit of the law. He's actually living according to the spirit of the Redeemer, of Jesus, who would come for him later in history. Boaz is putting God and others first. Boaz is putting a priority on obedience, on obedience in his life. How does this look in your life? On a scale of 1 to 10, where would you rate your concern for personal integrity, for striving for integrity? Where, where would you rate your concern to be striving for a close walk with God? Your desire to go above and beyond in your love for the Lord and your love for others. This is the first part of the essence of of covenant faithfulness. It's, it's key in your life. It's key for mine. God doesn't save us because of it, but he does bless us when we do life his way. Because his way is the way life is supposed to go. Don't let matters slide in your life. Shore up what needs shoring up. Live with integrity and obedience before your God. Secondly, the essence of covenant faithfulness includes leaving a legacy. 
leaving a legacy. We follow through what happens here. Boaz describes the situation to the kinsman redeemer. This guy who doesn't have a name. Did you notice that? We could call him Mr. No Name. At first, he agrees to redeem the land. No problem. And he does that because he thinks it's just Naomi he has to take in, I think. And then her land would eventually become part of his. But when he hears about the full situation, about Ruth and the whole deal, he backs out. Why? Well, it's because he finds out he would have to care for Naomi. He would have to care for Ruth and any children Ruth would have, but he'd get nothing out of it because then the children of Ruth, the way it worked, would get that land and be able to keep the land of Elimelech's family instead of him. If it was just Naomi, no children would come. That land would become part of his estate. As it is, he'd have to care for all these people. He wouldn't get anything out of it. That, that's, that's what's going on. There's this little parenthesis in verse 7, and then they actually do this in verse 8, taking off the sandal. He's not about to, like, throw his shoe at him. The shoe, the foot, actually, was a symbol of power. You know, when we'll say, hey, I'm going to take this in hand, that's how we say we're going to exert power or control over something. They would always say that He's going to put his foot on something. Conquerors put their foot on their enemies. If you bought land, you put your foot on that land. Psalm 108, 9, and 10 is an example of how that's used. So Mr. No Name gives up his power. He's giving up his rights in this situation, and that's freeing up Boaz. Then then you see how, then Boaz starts describing what he did. And one of the things he says is, I've also acquired Ruth. You kind of wonder about what Ruth would have thought about that after she, uh, she heard that later. I don't think she would have been thrilled with that language. But then this becomes key. He goes on to talk about maintaining the name of the dead. His name will not disappear among the records. The people, the witnesses, they all respond in a certain way. Now what's missing, what's missing here is any word about romance. You know, where's the passion? Where's the, where's, where's the love here? You, you wanna, you know, isn't that where this whole story is going? We're, we're waiting for Ruth and, and, and Boaz to hug each other, to have a long, passionate kiss. None of that's talked about. The, the reality is that there could have been romantic love there between them at this point. But there may not have. Since they marry, hopefully they would grow to love each other, definitely. But, you know, we're reminded of how it's described with Isaac and his wife in Genesis. Abraham sent his servant far away to find a God-fearing wife. It was not acceptable for his son to marry a Canaanite woman, someone who didn't believe in God. And young people, parents, this is so vital for your future today, too, when you're looking at, at mates and people to marry. They've got to be believers. So in Genesis, Abraham sends away for Rebekah so Isaac would have a wife to marry. They marry hardly knowing each other. 
hardly knowing each other. We, we read in Genesis later on that the love came, but like an initial spark or romantic love was not the basis of their relationship. And it's not here either, it, at least that's not talked about, even if it is there. What is emphasized? What is emphasized? It, 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 what, what comes through these verses is the importance of the family line. Why does Boaz say what he does? What is this about? I believe it's about leaving a legacy. They show a concern for future generations and a concern for laying foundations then that will last. That was the reason they married, to pass along the faith to the future generations. As the witnesses say in verse 11, they talk about building up together the house of Israel. Well, Israel was the church in those days. So they're referring to the importance of building up the people of God, passing down the faith. Think of that once. The legacy of faith and of future generations beyond us that's possible. I'll give you an example, just very close to home. I'll give you an example with my grandpa and grandma, Shuringa. And some of you know them, and that's one of the reasons I mention them. They have four children. 14 grandchildren. Now they have at least 14 great-grandchildren. So in their, their lifetime, they're still living, it went from 2 to 30 people. And, and if you add a few more generations, you can get to hundreds of people before you know it. A legacy of faith can be left behind. You know, and we, we can be so narrow-minded today. We can be so individualistic People can be, it can be all about them, all about us, it's all about our stuff, it's about our nice house. But there's something bigger than all of that. There's something bigger than romance even, as important as romance is between a husband and wife. That's another topic, another sermon. But there's the future to be thinking about. There's a legacy of faith that we can leave. That's what this was about for Ruth and Boaz. That's how they were living and starting out their lives together. I know not everyone here has children or grandchildren. Maybe never have, certainly don't in your home anymore, but that doesn't matter. When you belong to the church, you are part of the family of faith. You have a family. You have children. You too can leave a legacy to the next generation, no matter if you have children in your own household or not. At every baptism, we promise together, not just the parents, we promise to be discipling the next generations. So you don't have to feel left out of this. If you do, if you do, you're missing all kinds of opportunities that are right there in front of you, even in this church, to serve the next generation to be part of the legacy of faith. When you think about that, you know, your legacy, it, it can be helpful to think about, you know, what are people going to say at, at your funeral or, you know, we don't really put stuff on tombstones so much, but if there was a saying on your tombstone, if you died right now today, what would it say? 
what would it say? Would it say, he knew how to make a quick buck? Would it say, she was a sharp dresser? Would it say, he was really good at video games? How about she wanted future generations to love the Lord? How about he wanted to build up the people of God? How about she left a legacy of faith? That type of legacy is what covenant faithfulness is about. And I got to tell you, this was very, very different from Mr. No Name. You notice the guy who was the closer kinsman redeemer. He isn't even given a name. We've got Boaz. We might as well just call him Bozo. No offense to Bozo. We've got Bozo fans in this church. I'm a fan. But I mean, even Elimelech has a name. Elimelech, the guy who moved his family out of the church, who moved his family away from God's people. But Bozo is not so different. Bozo stayed with the church. He didn't leave it. He didn't walk away. But he was still only doing what was right in his own eyes. He only cared about himself. He didn't care about the future. I mean, Bozo might as well have left the church for how much he cared about God and for how much he cared about the kingdom. He only cared about himself. It's like, good for you, buddy, that you're in the church, but are you really living for the Lord or are you living for yourself? He seems to be just taking up space in God's land, just filling a space on a pew, not interested in furthering God's kingdom. What a shame to be a selfish bozo in the church. What a shame, this guy. There's so much more. If you have no bigger goals than your land, a good income, your next vacation, then you're really thinking small. You're not doing much. You won't be leaving anything. That's why this guy has no name. But you don't have to be a bozo today. You don't have to be a bozo in the church. Instead, you can think big. You can be thinking. Thinking big is thinking about God's people and the Lord and what he wants and our future together. You can leave a legacy of faith like Ruth and Boaz. We can further God's church and kingdom, passing on the faith to the next generations. Many of us have seen generations before us do that. And now it's your turn. Now it's my turn. Now it's our turn together. You think of it, 3,000 years later, and we know the name of Boaz. And we know how he lived and what he did, and we know of his covenant faithfulness. The other guy, we don't even know his name. What kind of legacy are you leaving? Leaving a legacy of Faith is a big part of the very essence of covenant faithfulness. Where does this all go? Where is this bringing us? We find out in the last section of the chapter, starting in 13 and following. A final piece to covenant faithfulness for your life and mine is this. Trusting in God's sovereignty. Trusting in God's sovereignty. What we see here is something that's come up again and again, and we're not just coming across it now for the first time. This book is not so much about Naomi and Ruth and Boaz as it is about God. The book doesn't reveal Ruth ultimately, but the book reveals God. We see here where this goes is showing us his bigger plan and his care for his people. 
Boaz took Ruth, it means he married her. The Lord enabled her to conceive. Did you catch that? What a great and true perspective. We've learned a lot in modern medicine. Doctors can do great things, but the Lord enabled her to conceive. Think of the joy in their hearts. A baby is born, a son. The neighbors come by and praise God. It's a wonderful scene. Then we have this family line. This family line in those last verses. And that's where the writer is basically placing in our hands the key to truly unlocking the book. This is why the writer wrote it. This book is about God and his kingdom and the coming of his son. You see, the line leads to David. To David. He would have a great place in God's kingdom. With God's help, he would be the one in his reign that would finally pull God's people out of the terrible times of the judges. David would expand the kingdom of God. He would give us the church's songbook, the Psalms. And David's family line would lead to Jesus. And the Bible reminds us of that and tells us that again and again, that Jesus was David's son. Jesus came to cleanse us from our sin, renew us by the Holy Spirit to be the people of integrity God wants us to be. He fulfilled all the promises of God so that we can experience God's legacy and faithfulness throughout the generations. They're looking ahead to Jesus. He's come. He has brought salvation for all who believe, not just the people of Israel. Ruth wasn't uh, someone from Israel. As a Moabitess, someone from another country, Ruth was a foreshadowing of what would happen. What would happen? Well, there would be countless non-Jews Jesus would die for in history from every nation as the gospel goes out, including us. We may belong to God because of Jesus, all of us, people of all backgrounds, all ages, all races. And now we can be part of God's plan. We can be part of what God is doing. This is what Jesus died to introduce us to and bring us to. Living lives of integrity, leaving a legacy. Doing those two things, especially, that's a perfect recipe for us being an integral and exciting part of the plan of God in history. So I encourage you, I implore you today to commit to God and his ways. Be serious about your walk with the Lord. Search out his will. Search out his ways in all the details. Don't be lax about that. Be righteous. Live for him. Think about maybe where you've let things slide, where you've been lazy, where you've thought, oh, that's not really so important. Where you've thought, it's okay to let that go. Shore up every area of your life for God's glory. Be upright. Be people of integrity. That's how to be faithful to the Lord, to his covenant today. And leave a legacy. Look down the road to your children and grandchildren, and future generations. Men, recommit to being the spiritual heads of your homes. What does your wife need? What do your children need? They need you to be the spiritual leader of your home. 
That's what they need. You may not have children this morning, but in the church, in your service, in your praying, in your giving, we can all certainly leave a powerful legacy for the generations to come. And I believe we are doing that here at Faith by God's grace as we worship and work and serve and pray together. Ruth gives us a beautiful and powerful formula for 2011, for life, for your family, for the church. Amen.